Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there are sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pushers podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. Um, if you've got something really cool working with IPv6, hey, we want to hear from you. So come join us on the IPv6 Buzz. We want to hear all about how you got V6 working and, and why it's cool. I'm Ed Horley. I'm with your, here with my co-host, Tom Coffey and Scott Hogue. And today we're going to be talking about the finance industry and, and sort of that current adoption that they're doing around IPv6 with our guest, John Burns from Wells Fargo. So John, welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about what Wells Fargo has done around your journey because, you know, it's for financial institutions, I imagine there's a lot of things going on around sort of difficulty to adopt and deploy V6. And and I imagine you have a lot of learning lessons. Maybe maybe a quick aside for those that don't know, Wells Fargo has been deploying and using V6 for a long time now. Maybe you could talk really briefly about what that was. And then what, what were your challenges along the road of sort of deploying V6 and what sort of surprised you along along that path? Give us a little bit of history there. Yeah, we, we we jumped into it at the at the beginning of the the Wells Fargo Wachovia merger in 2009 2010 when they put two really large networks together did a little back of the envelope math and said wow we need more than all the RFC 1918 space there is to really have a, a good growth path here and at that point the leader said great why don't you go to V6 and we said because we're not ready and they said oh that's too bad we missed an opportunity so that was really our initial motivation was seeing that a bank that grows through mergers and acquisitions and and you know has a a bold future need, needs to have uh, the the runway to get there. So um, we we came back to it in 2013, 14 is when we really started our uh, adoption kick. Uh, participated in a number of the forums that, that you gentlemen have all been involved with, the Rocky Mountain V6 Task Force and uh, some of the other ones, and um, you know started working through broad you know from the ground up bring the security teams in, bring the operations teams in, bring the purchasing people in, and really come up with a comprehensive plan. So that uh, takes takes a lot of time in a, in a large organization to get that done. But um, that was kind of the uh, beginning point was around then. And we've been slowly but surely moving forward since. You mentioned something that I think is important to point out, that I think is a misconception that many enterprises have, which is, Hey, I've got plenty of IPv4, therefore I can wait out IPv6, or, hey, IPv6 can fix my IPv4 address shortage problem. And the second one is only true if you find opportunities that can be V6 only and then don't use any IPv4 addresses. But the reality is most things still need IPv4 connectivity because the vast majority of things inside of an enterprise would be IPv4 still. So the only savings you have is is when you can divest yourself of IPv4 completely. Otherwise, you're still passing through that dual stack phase. So I mean what Oh ab- absolutely. And we're we're yeah. we're in, in the middle of that dual stack phase and, and and agree. And that's one reason we're really pushing hard to round the corner. I occasionally do these sort of test days where I, I unbind my V4 stack on a machine and just see, okay. So mm-hmm. what what do I lose out on for a while, right? And 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 it 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 gets better and better over time. A lot of the foundational things, you know, authentication, basic web services, email, yeah, those those things I can do. But yeah, you know, I try to get to a a specific app, and nope, app's not available. Or maybe some agent that I have loaded says, yeah, I'm not I'm not connected to the mothership anymore. So, um, and and there is a a, a real 
push and all, to be honest, some frustration with why can't we just, you know, get there. And, and that really speaks to the, the, the challenge that I think financial institutions in particular face. Most financial institutions have a long storied history, which means a, a long storied history of technology as well. Systems that have been around for a long time, lots of different systems. Some are offerings that are, you know, partnerships with other people like the Swift wire transfer system. You don't get to specify and write that yourself. You're using a package that is distributed to companies around the world. And so that gives you more sort of technical debt uh, for V4 that you've got to sort of clear out of the way. So yeah. we're definitely making progress on that, but I'm, I'm really dreaming of that day when we're around the corner um, and there's, there's still more gaps than I would like to see in, in a V6 only world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's good to sort of point out that um, the, it's a long time to do those sorts of transitions and, and it's not a, a small lift to make it happen in an organization the size of, of, of most financial institutions, right? And that history is, 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 um, is that technical debt you have to sort of carry forward. And I think it's, I think it's bigger than most people realize. I, it's, you know, is there anything around deploying V6 that maybe really surprised you, you know, starting off in the beginning? Because you've, you've been doing this for a long time. So there's, there's always that sort of inherent, like, what were the things that sort of like, you're like, oh, I, I didn't think about that or, or I didn't realize that that was going to be an issue for us that you discovered early on that like now it's old hat, but you're like, oh, that first time through, <laughs> it's like <laughs> scratching my head like, I, I don't get it. Where's, where's this coming from? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly surprised by how much just sort of tribal knowledge there is around IP addresses and people recognizing V4 prefix and going, oh, I know what that is. And, and people just used to typing in addresses in all kinds of contexts. Even, even casual users are like, you know, when I go to this website, I type in this IP address still. I'm like, wow, that's, that's just interesting <laughs> that that's you're, 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 it's like people remembering phone numbers, right? You're able to remember these things and use them and, and, uh, and it's hard for them to give it up. So I've, I've had to troubleshoot a number of times where there was a, a V6 address that was fat fingered because it literally was typed in um, and, and, you know, needed to be fixed. And, and so I had, I was hoping that, that we would kind of move past the idea that IPv4 addresses, are these cherished pets that you know and love, but they, they really get a hold on people in their lives. And, and, and so, and V6 is, you know, really kind of pushes you over the edge. You're not going to memorize V6 addresses with much regularity. I have to admit, I've memorized one or two, like the DNS servers, the Anycast sure. address. I've memorized it because I see it all the time. But everything else is like, no, I really shouldn't be doing that. I should be using tools and automation. So that, that was surprising. And also just the handling of addresses. So many people have, have, have kind of learned that, hey, you can read into V4 addresses a string. You can run string functions against it because it's always represented one way now. We're, we're pretty uniform in dotted decimal. People don't do leading zeros. People don't represent them in hex and things, even though I've seen that over my many years in the IT world. V6, uh, you know, if you're not following RFC 5952, then yeah, maybe you do leading zeros. Maybe you don't. Maybe you do you know, uppercase, lowercase hex. And, and mm-hmm. so if you then start trying to treat those as strings, whether that's in Splunk or that's in uh, some logging platform or something, you can really create some interesting challenges. And we're still kind of clearing through some of that technical debt. We, we have our deck we take around to people that says RFC 5952, right? It's a good idea. Here's, here's <laughs> the description. Here's the Python address, you know, yep. uh, library and other ones that you can use to get around this. But that's taken more effort than I would have expected. Yeah, Definitely. please normalize your data. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can, I can see that too. That's, that, those are all fantastic points. And I, I agree with you. I've seen that in, in many organizations too. I, I'm, I think Scott and Tom we both had similar experiences. Uh, well, yeah, especially road. around, uh, you know, when we talk about identifying uh, it's domain knowledge around addresses and identifying resources based on where they live outside of, you know, having the DNS name and having that be up and available. And, and you know, coming, it, it, you kind of pride yourself as a network engineer when you, when you're in an environment for a long time, it's like, Oh, I know where that is. I know where that lives. And, you know, the, and then the, the question with V6 then becomes sort of like, well, how, how, what is that going to look like? And, you know, I think early on, with all the confusion around how to put together the, the ideal address plan that takes advantage of the space and, and allocates and assigns addresses and prefixes in a way that makes sense operationally, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of domain knowledge. And, you know, I think I, I, I agree with you, John, on one level that, yeah, that, you know, we, we don't have the same opportunity to memorize uh, V6 in the same way that we've sort of been very facile with V4. But but having said that, you know, when, when you look at the prefix portion of the address and if you're handling everything, you know, on the nibble boundary and, and, and sort of planning your network out in that way, uh, you know, that, that kind of uh, domain knowledge around just what the prefix is and where it lives and, the, you know, that, that, can, that can sort of transfer over and maybe be very useful from an operational perspective. I don't know if you've seen that within the Wells Fargo network or not or if that's something that, you know, that's still aspirational. Um, but it's something that, you know, I, I would like to see uh, more networks get to and, and take advantage of. Yeah, we've definitely seen it in terms of address management and laying out things neatly, being able to automate the allocation. So our engineers in V6 can fully automate all of the address assignments for, say, you know, loopbacks, point-to-points, data subnets, voice subnets, everything can all be automated, uh, you know, is in, and they won't have to change that automation for, you know, knock on wood, 10 or 20 years until we actually exhaust, uh, you know, say, a slash 32. Mm-hmm. In V4, it's been extremely difficult to do that because the pools are constantly changing. Hey, I need a new space. Oh, well, here's a new block I'm going to give you. You've got to allocate that one differently. And so from an automation standpoint, it's, it's really been a godsend to have V6 and a chance to, like you said, lay out things on nibble boundaries, makes it much easier to write firewall policies and sort of aggregate policies and things like that. So that part has gone really well. Mm. We'll see about whether people are able to get beyond trying to memorize the prefixes enough to know what it is and say, it doesn't really matter. I know it's been laid out correctly and I, you know, the automation will take care of it or whether they'll still feel like they want to, you know, remember this one is that part of the network and this is that part, but um, it's definitely nice to make that change. And, And it's really drawn a lot of attention to just how much time and energy is squandered on IPv4 scarcity discussions of, hey, they want a 27, but we want to give them a slash 28. We should have a meeting and discuss this. Okay, how many resources just spent, <laughs> you know, half an hour on the phone to debate this? Or, yeah. you know, we need to light a new block and, okay, I need to get the backbone engineers to do a change to turn up this new block. With COVID, obviously, like most people, we did a, a big expansion of our, our remote employee access solutions. And so in V4, that was a huge effort to go and allocate more blocks for for all of the concentrators in in V6. It was okay. We gave you a slash sixty four per concentrator, which is eighteen quintillion addresses, and we gave you two hundred fifty six of those per data center. Let us know when that runs out, and we'll be happy to give you more. Right? So just just night yeah. and day difference. Yeah, here's um, your here's your allocation. Have a nice life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really, it really is that, and 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 people are still kind of just coming to terms with that. The unfortunate part is, as you mentioned earlier, is because we still have the V4 dependency, 
they yeah. still have to incur that pain. But but we can see what it will look and feel like when we move beyond that. And it, it's it's really a huge number of hours that are spent managing IPv4 scarcity that we've all just learned to accept because there there was no alternative. So everyone just you know tightens their belt and says, "Yep, this is just how life is." And and we're starting to see that no, it actually doesn't have to be that way. Just got a little further to go. Yeah, we just that's just part of the technical debt of IPv4. You know, being a legacy protocol, we've just gotten used to it. People forgot, you know, how how many it took them days to learn how to do IPv4 subnetting, you know, way back when. Mm-hmm. And they forgot how long that took. And so when it takes maybe a day to learn IPv6 addressing, they're like, oh my God, that was so much work. But they've spent, you know, a long time learning, yeah, what a slash. 29, 28, 27 is what a slash 30 is and how to convert, you know, binary to quad dot and decimal to figure out uh-huh. where's my subnet, which one's going to be the subnet broadcast address. And it takes work. You know, we just accept it as, oh, that's just the way things are. But it's more refreshing with IPv6. Absolutely. It's like lemonade. I uh, mix a little gin in there, and a little tonic, and you guys. There we go. There we go. That's, that's yeah. it. That's a sugar. We're all good to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there's lots of different drivers around V6 adoption, right? There's there's all sorts of use cases, and I and I found it fascinating that your earliest one was that was sort of a missed opportunity, right? Around that sort of merger and acquisition side, because it was like, wow, we really could if we had had this in place, we could have really expanded and and probably solved a lot of problems and probably removed a bunch of technical debt. Uh, at the same time, uh, yeah. you know, if, if you're if you're ready, then. But have there been other business drivers that you've noticed in in, in the journey that as you've gone through and and, and or as a as a collaboration amongst multiple teams? Because obviously, the it's, traditionally it's always been the network team problem around V6. But the reality is, as all of us know, is that it's a much bigger structural issue than just a network team issue. And so, have you had other business drivers that you've noticed, and you know how those impacted what you've what you've done um, around adopting V6? Yeah, a lot of it at the highest level is 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 risk mitigation, right? Which is is sort of part and parcel of what banks do, right? We manage risk, and so the risk that your customers will require connectivity over V6 because that's you know the device they've been given wants to speak V6. They're in a part of the world where that's the mandate. Um, they're making that transition and want their financial service provider to meet you. And we we have customers that you know need V6 support from us in, in whatever capability that is. And certainly, you know, we're a global company, so we operate in different markets and, and there's different regulations. Uh, India has made a big push for, um, you know, you need a V6 enable all websites. You'll notice the the adoption among financial industries of V6 is higher in India because of that. So that figures into it. And, you know, this is maybe more so about large enterprise and not just financial, but, you know, we, we, we keep adding endpoints, right? We've We've certainly gone beyond traditional desktops and laptops and servers, and you've got all kinds of sensors coming in and more and more security devices, building automation control endpoints, and all of those things need addresses, containers, et cetera. So that explosion has not slowed down. If anything, it's sort of picking up. And so that's where the business partner comes and says, hey, I want to roll out a new technology. And by the way, they tell me I need addresses. Can I have some of those, please? And that's where we have to say, well, <laughs> exactly how many do you need? And you need V4 or V6. And usually the the offer or the request today still comes in as V4. And so we have more conversations saying, you know, if you add for V6, we can do that very quickly. With V4, we have to go figure out what's available. Do we want to do some kind of a NAT solution or whatever? So um, yeah. the the growth of just 
IoT and, and, and other things is certainly a, a big business consideration. Well, I, that, that's where you point them and say, well, you can always pick up public v4 on the, on the free market at $31 an IP. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. See what they do there. So, John, have you had, you mentioned India, and we've talked on this podcast about the recent US government, you know, IPv6 mandate from the Office of Management and Budget. Have you had flow down IPv6 requirements from the US federal government, departments or agencies you interact with requiring it? Uh, certainly, uh, RFPs that come our way, that, that's a standard question on there. And we have had um, discussions with, with different parts of that. So, yeah, it, it's, it, it is one of our, our drivers. A- again, also some of the um, other institutions, particularly as, as companies uh, transition their environment to dual stack, um, if we're downstream of that in some relationship where addresses are, are sent to us, maybe we're offering a back-end service and we're going to do geolocation um, on, the, on the customer or whatever, that brings V6 onto our radar screen, even just at the sort of data element level. So that, that's definitely happening these days. Sometimes, you know, financial organizations restrict communications by address. You know, there has to be a static address assigned, or we know traffic for this particular application comes from a business partner, and they're using these public addresses. So we put those on the allow list. Do you also have those lists starting to be populated with IPv6 source addresses of where traffic's coming from, where you restrict access control to certain applications or systems or proxies or whatever? Yeah, certainly on the, on the, on the, the private circuit side, what we call the extranet mm-hmm. environment, um, mm-hmm. that's, that's starting to become standard. On, on the public side, I think there's still a lot of work to figure out the things like uh, reputation lists and kind mm-hmm. of where, where do we, how do we manage uh, what, what is seen as, as good or bad. But yeah, definitely one, one of the places that does cause us pain today in V4 is where a customer comes through sort of a, a carrier-grade NAT location, mm-hmm. right? If, if there's one bad actor, then people say block that one address because it's being bad. Well, if that's a carrier-grade NAT address, then you've suddenly blocked more than you intended. And that, that is definitely a problem we've hit before and want to be able to move beyond um, so that we're not, you know, sort of hitting too many things with, with a single action. Uh, so mm-hmm. the, the V4 address sharing problem is probably the most pressing one for us right now as far as a, a problem to, to work through. And I know the whole industry is kind of wrestling with that as, as more and more carry-grade net shows up. Yeah, that's, I, I think those are going to be I think those are going to be common sets of, of problems as we transition from V4 to V6. So it's really just a matter of, like you said at the beginning, around the risk mitigation side, right? Of, of understanding how you're going to address that. And I think that's going to be true for all enterprises. I don't think it's, it's restricted to, to just finance. Because you guys, you guys are a pretty heavily standardized industry, right? Does adopting a new networking protocol really sort of you know, impact, uh, impact compliance? Are there other challenges that you guys uh, see around um, you know, a protocol change? Because it's, it's sort of a unique point in time. There's not a lot of protocol changes that have happened um, you know, in, in the industry overall. I guess, well, I guess if you're, you know, depending on how much, you know, IPX you had adopted early <laughs> and, and moved to V4, et cetera, and, and RSNA, et cetera. But, but I mean, it, you know, what's, what, what challenges did you, did you face in such a large organization sort of, you know, dealing with that, that, that side of it? Yeah, it's one of the reasons that we went early to both the purchasing side and and the the sort of security side and said, you know, partner with us all the way through so we understand where the the gotchas might be. So, you know, getting 
language into our contracts uh, as we negotiate contracts with people or respond to a contract, right? So we don't sign up for something we can't deliver. Um, that Those conversations happen very early. So far, what I've seen from sort of compliance is it doesn't tend to get protocol specific, but it will get specific uh, down to the technology level. So something like payment card industry talks about like needing to firewall communications and they don't specifically say your IPv4 packet or address, but that's what they're implying. And so you have to make sure that you can map V6 into those same controls. So parity of capability is definitely kind of how that shows up for us as far as compliance is making sure that whatever is our, our standing policy with V4 has a natural analog with V6, if applicable. Again, you know, are, are we able to log that, monitor it, uh, secure it, whatever that might be? And those tend to then roll up into these higher level industry standards, HIPAA or federal tax and identification, things like that. Yeah, because um, PCI DSS, the old version, said, oh, you must use a NAT, you know, kind of implying that systems that are processing cards or have cardholder data must be on some private network. And it did say, you know, stateful firewalls, but the previous version called out specifically NAT. And we don't do that in IPv6. Um, and now the new version says something to the effect of NAT or equivalent, you know. And, <laughs> and so it depends on your, your QSA, your qualified security assessor. How are they going to interpret that? Oh, you put global addresses on your payment card server? Uh, I don't know. Let me check the rule book. It said you must use NAT. You're not using NAT. And you'd be like, well, what am I supposed to do? ULA? <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so it, it's up to the interpretation of the QSA. Yeah, and I, th I think it's something that, you know, for the financial industry, it, it takes a time for people to get comfortable with interpretation of that and sort of normalize on, on how to read that stuff. So early on, it, it, it does lead to interesting conversations. We try to get to, well, what's the actual intention of the, mm -hmm. the policy or the standard? And is this meeting the intention? Um, and realizing that, yeah, a lot of these were written in, in the middle of the, you know, the sort of the peak of V4 when things like RFC 1918 had become a necessity and, and sort of <laughs> pervasively adopted, but was never really what people wanted to do. It just turned out to be a workaround they needed. So I, I think with V6, it's a chance to recast the whole conversation and hopefully get some maybe better answers going forward than some of the, the things that people have had to accept because the limitations V4 puts on you. Yeah, because SOCs or GLBA don't even mention IPv6. So I guess it would be implied that every control then must support both protocols. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's part of the education side too, because this is one of the interesting things. Just because it's a global unicast address doesn't mean it's globally routable. It's not, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be. It just happens to be by definition. It has to be globally unique, is really what, yeah. what's important as an attribute of the, of the address, which means if you ever choose to route or you ever choose to put it on the internet, you know you're globally unique. That's an inherent property of the address that you've gotten. But it doesn't mean that you actually have to expose it or even make it available to people. Uh, there's yep. zero requirement around that. And, and I think there's some confusion, especially for, for folks that are new to V6 or around understanding that sort of, I wouldn't call it a nuance, but it's just sort of a, you know, a, a, a fact of the difference between how the, how the address space actually works. You know, because there's so much address space, you could assign addresses to things that wouldn't normally get an address like a document or a message or something. And if you, if you preserve the addressing format, you can say, well, I know this came from Wells Fargo because the, 
the prefix is, is a Wells Fargo registered thing, right? And I can globally verify that. But then, you know, the individual numbers that those 18 quintillion host addresses can sort of be selected. So I could see some, some interest in, you know, can, can we leverage the, the global assignment and attribution of V6 in some fashion that, that is, is much more difficult with V4 because most people do have to make mainly use of, of RFC 1918. Well, you can't claim you own any bit of it. So right. um, I could see some interesting use cases down the road as we look for, you know, identity and sort of um, relationship is such a key thing in, in the financial industry. And how do you create relationships with your customers? How do you create trust and all of that? And so I think, you know, getting getting Nats out of the end-to-end equation can help with that. And people being able to maybe validate the actual address they're connecting to, you know, things like that may may come to pass that were much more difficult in V4 just because it's such a mess of space. You know, it's like the internet routing tables over a million routes in V4 now. And, you know, V6 is, what, 100, 100K and change for an infinitely larger space, right? That's people like Verizon laying out their address for the next 20 years. In V4, you know, people are, are, are carving off slash 24s you know, every day and lighting them up, lighting them, lighting them up. So if you're trying to manage identity and things tied to addresses, you got to go pull the table every couple hours and see what changed in, in a V6 <laughs> world. It's pretty static yeah. uh, as far as I can tell. So I think there, there could be some interesting uses down the road with that, that well, your address I mean, is a more recognizable thing. Yeah, I imagine for financial institutions, like, so I've mentioned this before in previous podcasts, but uh, one of the interesting things could be like, you know, you do a financial transaction you're just going to, on the end side for maybe Wells Fargo, they use a single address out of a 64. It only exists for that moment in time that you need to do that transaction. Just never use the address again. Just yeah. Throw it away. <laughs> it's part yeah, of that it's, transaction. It's, it's, and yeah, it's unique it's, in that point in time. And, and it shows up once in your log file ever. <laughs> it's for that one transaction. And, and then you're done with it. And that could be a pretty unique identifier. If I were, you know, if I were super interested in, in looking at how to leverage V6, I mean, I did the back of the envelope math. This is a while ago around this. And it's sort of like, if you have like, I did it for containers, but if you're doing 10 million addresses a second and you never reuse another address, how long would it take you to burn through a slash 64? It's about 58,000 years. Mm-hmm. So like your data, is your data center going to even be here in a hundred years? Like, <laughs> what are you worried about 58,000 years? <laughs> yeah, but the downside is if you are rotating your source address frequently like that for each transaction, then the first hop router's neighbor cache is going to fill up. So you have to set, you have to age out the neighbor cache more quickly, or or deal with it somehow. Because if you oh, did just route, just route it, just route it to the host. Just take that sixty-four, route it to the same host, and be done. <laughs> right? Give yeah. each each server its own unique sixty-four, and yes, let, it, okay. let it burn through that, yeah. and you're, you're yes. good to go. Or, or for example, like, you know, in, embed it in in the stream, generate another one, and, and embed it in the stream as sort of like a, a cookie or something, or a client ID, and, and pass mm-hmm. that through or something. You know, it, it's, it's oh, yeah, to me, it's an extension of the one-time password, right? Which everyone yep. does that. Yep. So yeah, a one-time address. Yeah, it is an interesting idea. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, just you know, yeah. more fun with V six. Um, <laughs> just just the idea that. IPv6, because it's there's no NAT, because it's all using global addresses. We have this restoration of the end-to-end, you know, communication unicast principle that was originally thought of, you know, on the internet with public addresses. You have this sense that IPv6 addresses have a greater uh, amount of authenticity. And in u- uniqueness, too. So, we, you know, we've kind of mm-hmm. looked at, for like, guest networks, you know, Depending on, on whether we're doing DHCP or Slack, depending on the endpoints, 
um, we at least have the opportunity to say, hey, you know, we'll give out this address to that device. We'll never give it out again to anyone else. And if they come back, they'll probably request the same one so we can actually know that that's probably the same device that's come back versus it's something new in, in V4 with a DHCP subnet. You're constantly cycling through all the addresses. And, and Sal has been a complaint of the security team is, hey, one day this was this kind of device, but the next day it was something different because DHCP gave out a different address. Uh, so in V6, it's given us a chance to step back from that and say, okay, let's just keep it consistent. Don't give out the same address to two different hosts, you know, cache that table and keep that unique. And so, again, just just helps with, with the security posture to have a little more predictability and uniqueness over what's kind of been forced on us with V4, which is, yeah, we're all sharing addresses. Yeah, because if you're for fraud detection or, you know, business analytics on your web tier, you're capturing the client IP address either directly or as an X-forwarded four header yep. through that reverse proxy server. And if that address keeps changing, you know, you're trying to then have a log for, you know, for forensics or non-repudiation or validation or, you know, fraud detection. And you're, but that address keeps changing and you're, you're struggling with IPv4 to say, who is this really? Is this really the transaction? How do we validate it uh, when there's so much NAT in the path? Yeah. And of course, in V6, that's where it you know, becomes a question of how much will privacy extensions figure into that. It sort of seems to be a, a mixed bag of mm-hmm. which systems do it, don't do it, et cetera. But at least it gives us more options, more knobs to, to deal with, and more, more numbers. You, know, you can do a lot with big numbers. So I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sort of interested in all of that. Uh, the possibilities, even linking that into like blockchain technologies and things. Right now, you have something much more unique possibly you could do. You know, 128 bits is, is the same as a GUID, right? So that's 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 <laughs> something that all Unix administrators understand. This is a unique thing that uniquely identifies this system across the world or, you know, DUID. You know, a V6 address has, has at least the potential to be the same thing. Yeah, it's 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 definitely opens up some a realm of possibilities that uh, you definitely don't have in the V4 side, which is which is pretty cool. And I imagine I imagine it's I, I agree with you. The whole you know sort of stable lower sixty four, right? It's, it's going to be a, you know that sort of stable host side is going to be an interesting debate as it sort of moves through with everyone about what's the best way to sort of tackle that. Um, you know, to 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 deal with the privacy and the whole old EUI sixty four issues, right? Yeah, uh, and, and what you want to share or not? Yeah, I, I, and maybe maybe that leads into the next part, which is like maybe benefits around V six, because we talked about some of the uniqueness characteristics. But are there are there any specific you know benefits that you found around V six that were sort of maybe unexpected or or things that were that were really sort of like wow, this is really cool. If we could get to maybe V six only, this would be a huge benefit for us, or we can even get benefit out of this right now today within our given area of of, of environment and what we can control. Well, one of the big ones that I had just not foreseen coming, and maybe everyone's like, oh, of course, is, you know, if you, if you say, oh, I want to clean up my environment, you could do a massive V4 readdressing, maybe normalize the subnet sizes, clean things up. But our experience is that that's a very time-consuming exercise. Often you have to you do truck rolls to have people go out and, and, and touch a machine and, you know, reconfigure it, make sure it comes back up. You've got to have space to, to move everyone into, et cetera. And so, but rolling out V6, you can use the, the V4 as sort of a substrate and roll out V6 on top of it. So we haven't done any truck rolls for the V6 deployment at all, right? And, and you can get the whole thing rolled out and in theory, then take back the V4 now using V6 as sort of the substrate 
and 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 in in probably cut down your overall migration costs by a very large number. Now, obviously, you've got to be in a position where you can see that all the way through to get the full benefit. But if if you said, well, my option is do a massive V four readdressing project to clean things up, or you know, do a pivot to V six, the execution cost of getting that done, I'm going to argue, are going to be a lot cheaper on V six because you don't have to do all the manual touches as as you would when you're changing v4 and you know rebooting servers and all these things we just you know you can add v6 as a, as a new element on an existing system so that really surprised me as far as a great consideration i think the other one that's been interesting is how many people sort of bring out their dead once they realize that here's a chance to change things. They're like, you know, we've been trying to get rid of wins on windows forever and it's not supporting V6. Great. We love V6 because now you can get rid of that. Or we've been trying to get rid of this DNS domain for years. That's from an old merger, but no one will get rid of it. But in V6, we don't have to do that. We'll just, we'll pivot to the new, you know, domain name we want or the new certificate deployment style we want or whatever. So I, I found a lot more allies along the way who say, I'm not so interested in V6 itself, but I'm really interested in the house cleaning aspect and kind of modernizing the technology stack. And this is a, a sort of a natural change to do that. Gives people a chance to rethink all kinds of things that they've just kind of accepted they could never change because in the V4 world, it's just too much effort. It's very much in, in line with the whole uh, expectations around, the, the, like you said, the, the merger and acquisition side too, because it's the same pivot point, right? It's like, how do I solve a really hard problem? Because most people don't realize the level of effort to integrate large organizations networks together is just like you're going to take a set of team and be like you know we have this roadmap to get you integrated together and to do and we're overlapping in you know 3 quarters of our RFC 1918 address space and it's you know it's which management team's going to fight harder to not have to redo this on their side who's going to have to fund all the team that has to run around to readdress all this sort of stuff or who's going to own all the burden for nat it breaks all your routing topology, right? So you're really brittle if you choose to just use NAT and and get away from it all that way. Yep. It's just it just turns into a a pile and piles and piles of of technical debt to continue supporting that. And literally, you can just say like, no, we're we're already running V6. We'll assign you some new V6. You come meet us on the V6 area. Things that don't work, we'll put them on a server load balancer, right? Get you in, put some transition technologies in. You just keep your V4 and leave it running. <laughs> Yep. Whatever you're doing, we're just not going to peer with you on V4. We're never going to exchange routes. We just don't care what you're doing on the V4 side because we just don't talk to you on V4 anymore. We just switch over and, and, and do it that way. And I think that's a it's it's a similar point to what you're making, which is we're just going to turn it v, V6 as net new for whatever these new services are. And guess what? We can just talk on V6 native and we can leave behind these old technical debts that we had. Uh, assuming that you can get you know your applications to function properly and everything else, which is important, you need a proof of concept lab and make sure it all works. But but uh, yeah, that's it's it's a great point. I mean, it's and it's definitely one of the huge benefits around V six that I think most people haven't really thought about at all. Um, it, it, does that pivot to any sort of innovation? Have you have you guys had a chance to actually sort of innovate on top of V six for for these sorts of reasons? Have you seen other financial industry you know colleagues that have that have been able to to innovate in this area at all? Not as much as I'd like, and I, I credit a lot of that to the slow adoption in, in the public cloud space, because that's where a lot of the innovation is happening these days, because mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure is fungible, you can get in and out very quickly, and uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the, 
Support for V6 only is still pretty non-existent in, in, in the big cloud providers. Most of them have some level of V6 support and are kind of growing that and all are committed, at least all the ones I've talked to. But that that's still a, a ding on, on, on that environment that I think they're if we've been turning up things, people have said, oh, we'd love to do V6 only can when I'm like, I'm sorry, no, I can't offer that to you at, you know, Google or AWS or Azure. That's that's not an offering yet. But I think that's where we'll see a lot of that innovation come in when people can experiment with it in, in an environment that's maybe it doesn't feel as fettered. And there's a lot of uh, an ecosystem of innovation around that. You know, you have AI ML and, and, and different services that you can do things with. So that's kind of my hope, and and um, I, w- I was thinking 2021 might be the year of finally getting there. It looks like maybe 2022. I think I think the COVID issue sort of slowed some some things down as far as adoption. But at least from what I hear from all the providers, they're they're feeling more and more comfortable about getting there. And I think that's a point at which we can really see a, a transition from just trying to make it work to now. What can I do that takes me beyond where we are today? Yeah, that's. I would agree with you. I mean, and I don't know. You know, obviously the the financial industry overall and their relationship with the public clouds has got to be probably pretty complex, right? Yeah, because because of just because of of the industry sets and, and what they need to provide versus what you folks uh, actually actually require as services. So I imagine there's a whole set of challenges to go along with that. But I, I do think it'll be interesting to see what what they're able to come up with and how they can sort of extend uh, what they're doing in, in more unique ways. I don't know. Is it, was there any, you know, long time sort of V6 deployment? Is there is there things you want to leave our listeners with, like a small checklist or anything else where you're like, hey, you know, this are these are things that you really need to be thinking about in regards to V6, in regards to adoption, in regards to dual stack, in regards to you know anything else that you've learned over the over the plethora of years of doing V6 deployment. Well, the, I mean, the, the highlight for me has been just how generally reliable things have been, you know, when you get into a new feature and I go way back to the days of, you know, RSRB and DLSW and EIGRP, you know, and some of those things when they rolled out were, were a little shaky that, you know, the code was, <laughs> was less than optimal things happened. And, and V6 knock on wood has been extremely stable. I can't think of a single case where we enabled something and it went into the tank, whether it was a router, a firewall, a load balancer, the infrastructure has been solid. The applications have generally been very solid. The, the the biggest challenge has been is it supported on all the particularly the software that we want, and that's that's been the gap. But the the feature set, you know, credit to the people who coded it. They they all seem to understand what they're doing pretty well. So that part has been very solid. And when people are doing a V6 change some night, I don't, I don't lie awake at night going, oh, I hope it works. That 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 has been a very pleasant reality. You know, I do think uh, most companies are going to have to again teach their people to get past the, the the gospel of scarcity that everyone's just so c- familiar with on v4 that they can't think beyond that and they'll you'll have to have the arguments about why don't we make all the subnet slash 112 and you say no you don't really need to preserve that no we do we shouldn't use more than that and you know i i, I don't want to you know i, I want to have variable bit masks because it's wasteful to use you know these these bigger masks and just you know Again, trying to memorize them, trying to treat them like strings, all of those things. We've had 25 plus years of, of V4 in, in people's hands and hearts, and, it, and it's hard to, to move beyond that. But I think you start to see some really nice things on the horizon as, as you can move past V4. We've had a lot of those those here. And then a whole whole world of innovations that we haven't yet seen that um, V4, I think, has been they pretty much squoze all the, the water out of that rock that they're going to get. 
And I, I think V6 has opened up a number of doors that haven't f- been fully explored that I think we'll, we'll see some nice solutions to thorny challenges. I've been working on one that's um, multi-addressed extranets, right? We're so used to an extranet being you know, a set of addresses you have to expose that's the same address on these devices unless you're natting. And in V6, maybe you give addresses or devices more than one address and you have an address family that represents their persona inside and a different address set that represents their persona outside. And mm-hmm. now you can write different sets of policies. You can track that differently. Every tool can understand the context of that address. And that we just don't do that today in V4 because it would be really complicated to multi-address things. But V6 is much more comfortable. So I think things like that will will emerge. We've got a lot of smart people out there writing RFCs and, and ITF drafts. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic we'll see some some nice stuff as we finally round the corner from V6 is sort of like, oh, maybe one day I'll do that to, oh, okay, that's pretty normal. And uh, most of the app developers I talked to are kind of like, oh, yeah, uh, tell me tell me if I can use that. That seems like a good idea. They're not resistant to the idea at all. They just, you know, they want it as part of their service mesh or whatever, and on they go. So it's really just getting the last few bottlenecks cleared in terms of vendor support and and just getting people over that hurdle of, it's nothing to be afraid of, just go at it slowly and carefully and figure it out. Well, I, I appreciate you added something new to my vocabulary for around V6, the gospel of scarcity. That, that's the <laughs> that's my key takeaway on this one. Well, hey, unlike V6, we've run out of space for this podcast. Thanks to today's guest, uh, John Burns. How can the audience follow you on the internet? You can find me on LinkedIn. So that's probably the easiest way. And we'll provide your, your LinkedIn information in the show notes. And in addition, uh, you presented previously at, at some of the some of the Rocky Mountain events and others. And so we'll provide some links for some of the presentations <laughs> you've given in the past on the public side there. Uh, with that, you can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter. It's at IPv6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. Uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at E. Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. If you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify. If you like this podcast, and we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and Network Break, all the other podcasts over at PacketPushers.net. So long, and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.